from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Several countries are rightly accusing Israel of genocide and war crimes for its siege, bombing, and murder of Palestinians, but they are going to the International Criminal Court, and that's the wrong court. We speak to journalist Sam Husseini. So most people are focusing on this International Criminal Court, but that's not at all the only game in town. The International Court of Justice, also called the World Court, does not prosecute individuals, but it does take action against states. And as Venezuela moves to reclaim land it says was stolen by the British Empire, mediators in Brazil and Cuba don't want to give the U.S. Empire an excuse to further target the Bolivarian Republic. We speak to historian Gerald Horn. Certainly Caracas has a point when it suggests that at the end of the 19th century, their regime was disadvantaged in confronting the mighty British Empire. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, some headlines. After two months of Israel carpet bombing Gaza, murdering more than 16,000 men, women, and children, and creating the unlivable conditions for tens of thousands more to die, on December 6th, the United Nations General Secretary Antonio Guterres invoked Article 99 of the U.N. Charter urging the Security Council for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to avert a catastrophe. At the U.N., Kristen Salumi of Al Jazeera reported on this rare action. As the situation goes from bad to worse, we see the Secretary General invoking this power to press the Security Council to take action that it has been unable to do so far. So this is a pretty significant step by the Secretary General in his entire time as Secretary General since 2017. He has never once used Article 99. This is the first time. So that uh, gives a sense of just how uh, dire the situation is in Gaza. More later in the show about the relationship between calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and calling to stop the genocide. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are calling for an official investigation of a deadly Israeli attack on a group of journalists, which Human Rights Watch called, quote, apparently deliberate, end quote, and likely a war crime. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Reuters, and Agence France Press on Thursday all published their own separate investigations into the October 13th Israel Defense Forces attack that killed 37-year-old Lebanese Reuters videographer Issam Abdallah and wounded a half-dozen other journalists who were covering cross-border exchanges of fire between Israeli and Hezbollah troops near the village of Amma al-Shab in southern Lebanon. Reuters determined that an Israeli tank crew, quote, fired two shells in quick succession, end quote, at the journalists who Human Rights Watch said were, quote, clearly identifiable as members of the media and had been stationary for at least 75 minutes, end quote. Since the IDF launched its war on Gaza following the October 7th Hamas-led attacks on Israel, the Committee to Protect Journalists has documented the killing of at least 63 media professionals, including 56 Palestinians, three Lebanese, and four Israelis. Free Speech in the United States, 
about the horror in Gaza genocide is continuing to come under fire. This week, Congress held a hearing in which university presidents were given loaded questions designed to paint pro-Palestinian students on campuses as supporting Jewish genocide. At a Thursday press conference with the group Doctors Against Genocide, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan spoke about the need to speak up for Palestinians. I once again stand here to ask my colleagues, how many more lives will be enough for you all? How many more innocent civilians and children have to be killed? How many more lives will you accept as collateral damage? There is nothing humanitarian about giving Palestinians a few days of rest before they are bombed again. We are calling for an end of this violence. We need a permanent ceasefire now. We need an end to the genocide. And the crackdown on dissent is continuing against peaceful protesters of the Cop City Police Training Facility in Atlanta. Writing for the publication The Conversation, Rachel McCain, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Brandeis University, and David Pello, Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, wrote that the kind of racketeering charges brought against Cop City protesters are unprecedented. They wrote that, quote, activists are being criminalized for their political beliefs and for engaging in activities protected by the First Amendment, such as exercising free speech. Criminalizing collectivism, mutual aid and social solidarity is particularly concerning for historically marginalized populations who often rely on these tactics for survival, end quote, they wrote. McCain and Pello end their essay by describing the latest developments in the grassroots effort to stop the $90 million militarized police training facility. They described how seeking to use the state's political processes, organizers recently collected more than 116,000 signatures supporting a ballot referendum that, if approved, would cancel the lease of the city-owned site for the training center. But as the professors note, Atlanta officials have refused to verify those signatures as they await a federal court ruling on whether the organizers missed a key deadline. Meanwhile, Atlanta is clearing land for construction at the training site. In culture and media, human rights defenders around the world expressed anguish and outrage Thursday after Rafat Alarir, a Palestinian professor who was one of Gaza's most prominent writers and activists, was killed in an Israeli airstrike in Shijaya that also killed his brother, sister, and her four children. Alarir, 44, was a beloved professor of world literature, comparative literature, Shakespeare, and creative writing at the Islamic University of Gaza, where he taught since 2007, noted literary hub. And I'll say for myself, many of us seeking voices from Gaza have been fortunate to hear and see Alarir on Electronic Intifada. Editor Ali Abunima posted online, quote, We are devastated by Israel's murder of our dear colleague, friend, and mentor, Dr. Rifat Alarir. Throughout this genocide, Rifat never stopped writing, supporting his students, and bringing Gaza's voice to the world. We will make sure it continues to be heard. End quote. Also, the award-winning poet Masab Abu Toa said in an interview on Democracy Now! how he was stripped naked, jailed, and beaten by Israeli forces before he was one of the few rescued and allowed to leave the devastation with his immediate family. 
And finally, the Belmarsh Tribunal for Imprisoned Journalist Julian Assange will return to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, December 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern. The tribunal calls for the release of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange as his potential extradition from the U.K. to the U.S. is a possibility with his final U.K. court hearing expected in early 2024. The tribunal can be viewed on YouTube, Democracy Now! and Consortium News during and after the live broadcast. Also shut it down for Palestine events are ongoing around the country. Here in the D.C. area, the next event as of this broadcast is the March to Defund the War Machine, Saturday, December 9th, beginning at 12 noon, meeting at the Pentagon City Metro Station in Arlington, Virginia. That's the March to Defund the War Machine, Saturday, December 9th, beginning at 12 noon, meeting at the Pentagon City Metro Station in Arlington, Virginia. More information is at shutitdownforpalestine.org for events here and all around the country. Now, for our listeners in Washington, D.C., On the Ground will be preempted on December 15th, but you can check out our December 15th show on our website, onthegroundshow.org, and on the podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam. And that's on all your podcast platforms. Well, those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Gaza. 
Over 15,000 Palestinians have been martyred by the cowardly Zionist entity and its bombs. Bombs which were manufactured and supplied by the U.S. Bombs that were manufactured and supplied by this building that we're standing outside. Zionism continues to expose its true intentions to the world. After 75 years of ongoing colonization and oppression, but I promise this, we will never forget. And there is not a chance in hell that we will ever forgive. I want to be very clear when we talk about this so-called humanitarian pause. There has been no pause to the genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. There has been no pause to the suffocating 17-year-long siege on Gaza. There has been no pause of the Zionist colonization of Palestine. No pause to the daily violence. No pause to the expansion of settlements. No pause to the theft of homes and land, the abduction and detention of our people, the existence of checkpoints. There has been no pause in Zionist violence what we want is clear and unwavering we want our people to be free we want the end of Zionist colonialism and what I want from every single person here is to keep taking action we have to increase pressure we have to make our demands heard and enacted upon this recent release of over 150 women and child Palestinian political prisoners was only made possible because of the steadfast resilience of the Palestinian people. Don't let anyone tell you it was anything else. It is a bittersweet moment to witness the release of our prisoners. We are full of grief, but we are also full of pride as we witness the mothers of released prisoners hugging their children for the first time in years, many of whom were locked up with no trial. The celebration of Palestinian resistance with tears is a mix of our, sour, our sorrow and our joy because the PYM considers our political prisoners to be the compass of our movement, of our struggle. Our political prisoners are in daily confrontation with the Zionist entity's brutality. They face harsh and brutal conditions in the occupation's prisons. Many of our prisoners face years in prison without charge under administrative detention, so-called. And inside the prisons currently, the Zionists are trying to isolate Palestinians, to starve them, and to bring them to a breaking point. But we know they're unable to do so. They are unable to do so because nothing can beat the spirit of our people. Nothing will beat the spirit of our people. The price of the freedom for our political prisoners has been blood. The amount of which we will never forget. We will never forget the blood and the years of sacrifice of our prisoners and our steadfast people in Gaza. We have so much honor for the steadfastness of our people. We owe it to our people and Gaza and all of Palestine to remain steadfast, to remain steadfast in our actions, in our struggle, in our hope, and in our belief that Palestine will be liberated in our lifetime. And I have 
a message for everyone here. We must continue to struggle because not one death, not one death of our people will be in vain. And we mourn our martyrs. Every day we mourn them. But our mourning should never be mistaken for defeat. Gaza will continue to resist. Palestine will resist. And we here in the U.S., we will resist and we will fight until our homeland is liberated and our people are free because our mourning is mingled with rage but also determination in a knowledge that we will never quit. We will never quit. And we as Palestinians and people of conscience in the diaspora have a duty to support our liberation struggle in Palestine. We recognize that we have a responsibility living in the U.S. in the Imperial Court to uplift a very specific and particular message in support of Palestinian self-determination and resistance and nothing less in the face of ongoing occupation, bombardment, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. And we have a responsibility to never stop fighting for these demands. And we must make ourselves abundantly clear that what we need is an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza, as well as the end to the brutal siege and the end to all USA to the Zionist occupation. Our morale is high, but our victory is reserved solely for Palestinian liberation from occupation, and we will accept nothing less. And the Zionists, they want the momentum to die down. They want us to stop fighting for our people and they want us to fall silent. They think that by having this four-day pause, we will forget. But I promise, and every single person here, I want you to promise that we will never stop fighting. That we will never fall silent. That we will never forget our cause, our struggle, our people, our homelands. And we will continue to struggle until the siege is lifted from the river to the sea and until Palestine is free. That was a member of the Palestine Youth Movement speaking in front of the U.S. State Department on November 29th for Shut It Down for Palestine. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, after two months of Israel carpet bombing the enclave of Gaza, murdering more than 16,000 men, women, and children, and creating the unlivable conditions for tens of thousands more to die, On December 6th, the United Nations General Secretary Antonio Guterres invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter, urging the Security Council for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to avert a catastrophe in Gaza. Though the United States has blocked previous Security Council measures for a ceasefire, the invoking of Article 99 of the UN Charter 
finally joins with the world chorus of mass mobilizations here in D.C. and across the globe, calling for not only a ceasefire, but for an end to the genocide happening in real time before our eyes every day. Well, with me to discuss the invoking of genocide against Israel is Sam Husseini. He's written widely on politics, foreign affairs, public policy, media, and culture. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Great to be with you, Esther. Thank you. Well, I think I was mentioning before we started to go to air that it's just difficult to be a journalist right now reporting Mm -hmm. on this genocide in Israel. It's not something normal, but so much of the propaganda coming from Israel attempts to normalize it. And so many of the actions, even by our own lawmakers here, attempt to normalize something that is not normal, something that is really horrible. And so when I saw your article about invoking uh, genocide, it gave me hope that there is at least a strategy for what seems like inertia, you know, as we see this horror, you know, happen before our eyes. So last week when I was talking to Gerald Horn, he talked about how the ICC, the International Criminal Court is a puppet organization. And it seems seems that way for for a long time. It was this running joke that the only people they persecuted were Africans mm-hmm. that and then Finally, Milosevic in Yugoslavia was persecuted, you know, from a former socialist country. But several countries, including South Africa, Bangladesh, Bolivia, and you write this, Comoros, Djibouti, as well as Colombia and Algeria and Turkey have moved for the ICC to prosecute Israeli officials. But the problem is that the ICC has not prosecuted Israel for anything. It's been dragging its feet and it's dragging its feet now. So the, the the thing I liked about your article is that it talked about the ICC is not the only option and that there is the International Court of Justice, also called the World Court, and they have ruled against Israel. So just talk about the difference between those two courts, break it down for us, because a lot of us believe that the ICC was the only game in town and they don't really understand this kind of international structure of these courts. Thank you. Um, that's exactly right. The prosecutor of the ICC, which, as you say, it, it uh, went after all of these Africans and, you know, people called it uh, the white man's court and so on. And then finally, they put charges up against Putin, further indicating that they are fundamentally an instrument of the U.S. and NATO, even though the U.S. has never signed on to the ICC. Um, and I just should jump in mm-hmm. that they put charges against him for basically rescuing mm-hmm. 2000 orphans mm-hmm. in the Donbass made orphans by the relentless bombing of the Donbass by the Kiev regime over that eight years between 2014 and the start of this military operation or invasion, whatever you want to call it, last year by Russia. I just want to make that clear for right. people who are listening. Yeah. Yeah. So it's incredible that they have for years dragged their heels on doing anything regarding Israel. And finally, around 2018 or 19, the former prosecutor started an inquiry about Israel and the Trump administration, you know, uh, blocked her visa and so on. She couldn't even come to the U.S., even though she had done a lot of their bidding. She started inquiries regarding U.S. actions in Afghanistan and Israeli actions against the Palestinians. So the Trump administration went after her. She's left. And this new guy, this British barrister, Khan, is there. He Mm. went to 
uh, the Rafa crossing several weeks ago for basically a photo op, as if to say, you know, I'm looking seriously at the situation. You know, I'm the cop in charge. You know, bring your complaints to me. So all of these countries from South Africa to Algeria to Turkey and so on, Colombia did the requisite legal work and took their complaints to the ICC. And he's done nothing <laughs> regarding the Palestinians. He went and he just most recently he went to Israel and listened intently to some of the families who are victims of the October 7th attack and put out a series of statements, none of which said anything about the thousands upon thousands of Palestinian children who have been massacred for these last two months, much less prior Israeli actions. I mean, you have prior prosecutors from the ICC who now tacitly say that even the siege is a genocidal act. That is the fact that Israel is, you know, prohibiting stuff from getting in, which at some level has gone on for years and years, is a genocidal act. Anyway, so most people are focusing on this international criminal court. But as you say, that's not at all the only game in town. The International Court of Justice, also called the World Court, does not prosecute individuals, but it does take action against states. And virtually every country in the world has signed on to the Genocide Convention. And so any country, be it South Africa or Chile or any signatory to this, can invoke the Genocide Convention against Israel, taking it to court at the International Court of Justice. This is long overdue, particularly since many of these countries have been saying that what Israel is doing is genocide. So my argument is that's great. I mean, a lot of these countries have taken symbolic actions, uh, have withdrawn their ambassadors, have gone to the ICC. But unfortunately, as we say, that's a dead end. But they have either said that Israel is guilty of war crimes or of outright genocide. But no country yet has invoked the Genocide Convention, as is their right. Indeed, I would argue, as is their treaty obligation. The Genocide Convention says that we signatories endeavor to not only punish, but to prevent genocide. That is, if they think that a genocide is going on or is about to you know, take place, they're obliged by this treaty to invoke this treaty against the guilty party, in this case, Israel, in order to help prevent an imminent genocide. And I think that this applies. And I think it's a great, you know, something for journalists like myself to be raising, but also something for activists to be raising with these individual countries. You know, we can, you know, certainly, and we should protest and complain uh, against what Netanyahu is doing and what Biden is doing and so on and so forth. But I think that people can also and should also manifest their views to other countries to figure out how nations and movements can organize themselves in a way to affect uh, what is going on and to alleviate as much as possible and prevent this genocide and the human suffering entailed in that. Right. In, in your piece, you quote from Craig Murray, now a human rights activist who was the British ambassador to Uzbekistan and rector of the University of Dundee. And he talks about how many countries may not know about the International World Court, or they may not understand the mechanism needed, as you just described. So what is the relationship between this court, the International World Court and the U.N.? Because, you know, we just had Guterres 
invoke Article 99 there and urge the Security Council to have a debate and demand a ceasefire in Gaza. The International Court of Justice is the primary judicial organ of the UN system. It would be equivalent to, say, the Supreme Court. The difference here is that it doesn't deal with individuals. So, for example, they can't say, you, Netanyahu, are guilty of genocide and we're going to lock you up. What they can say is that there's a genocide taking place in Palestine. Israel as a state is guilty of this. And we are going to refer it to other bodies in the United Nations to take appropriate action. So one of the first steps that would happen if they were to invoke this, and, and there's, I should say there's a precedent in this. This was done by Bosnia. Bosnia filed a lawsuit at the International Criminal Court against Yugoslavia uh, when you had the siege of Srebrenica and so on. And they invoked the Genocide Convention under an emergency procedure, which could be done in the current case against Israel. They got a ruling in three weeks. They got an emergency ruling in three weeks, and the World Court issued a cease and desist order against Yugoslavia for its actions. It would be referred to other organs in the UN system, including the UN Security Council. Now, almost certainly the United States government will veto any action pertaining to this at the Security Council, but it would isolate them tremendously to have a world court ruling saying Israel is guilty of genocide. And then then the, the General Assembly could basically start something of a revolt against the U.S. veto at the U.N. There's a procedure called Uniting for Peace, where the General Assembly attempts to manifest its power uh, against a veto of an obstinate member of the Security Council. The General Assembly could then take other steps. For example, it could expel Israel as a member, as happened in the case of South Africa. It could mm. bring Palestine in as a full member of the United Nations as an attempt to protect it. Uh, it's very hard to eradicate a nation once it's a full-fledged member of the United Nations. Right now, the provisional government of Palestine only has observer status at the United Nations. It's that time of the year, and I know so many of our on-the-ground listeners will be receiving solicitations for donations. And I want to remind you that On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored show, and we are a not-for-profit. We are a registered not-for-profit in the United States. So that means that anything that you give is tax-deductible. It could be that some of us are in a position to be very generous. And if you are, I ask you to please consider On the Ground in your end-of-year giving. The easiest way to give is on our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash On the Ground Show. You can also give on PayPal and find out other ways to give on our website, onthegroundshow.org. But if you enjoy the show, if you check out the show, if you enjoy what we're able to produce as this labor of love, please join with us and uh, be an activist with us. Be an active agent of articulation in these perilous times and support independent media because we only have you to rely on. So again, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And also onthegroundshow.org has links to PayPal 
and the address to send a check if you can do that. But whatever you do, know that it will be much appreciated. Thank you. Your piece also was very informative. And I also learned that in the United Nations, the Palestinians are represented by Fatah. And that's connected to Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is over the uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And and it just raises the issue. I think it may be uh, Craig Murray also raising this issue mm-hmm. that, you know, why hasn't Fatah as a, even as an observer raised this issue in the United Nations? And, you know, perhaps the fact that they've not is giving cover to all these other full members who could, mm-hmm. you know, I seem to lean more on the idea of people not being aware of the mechanism because you have countries like South Africa, Cuba, there are a lot of countries here who aren't afraid of, you know, further damaging their relationship with the United States because it's, it's as damaged as it can be. Right. These are places, there are a lot of countries that have no relationship with the U.S. And, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's hard to know what's going on inside of different people's heads. I mean, technically speaking, the provisional government of Palestine is, even though it's it's only an observer member at the U.N., it is a signatory to the Genocide Convention. So it could invoke it directly. So it's not clear to me why they haven't done that. It could be complete corruption. It could be incredible stupidity. It could be that they, you know, still resent Hamas because of the schism between Hamas, which, you know, dominates internally the Gaza Strip, whereas Abbas and the Palestine Authority are on the West Bank. It could be that they're, they've been threatened. And indeed, they have been threatened in this regard in the past. For example, Palestine signed on to the International Criminal Court Several years ago, Israel, like the United States, has never signed on to the International Criminal Court, even though they get it to do its bidding. But the Palestinians did sign on to it, and the U.S. tried to get them not to because the U.S. was afraid that if the Palestinians signed on to it, even though Israel hadn't signed on to it, it could theoretically give some measure of protection to the Palestinians, but it has not done so. But the Palestinian Authority is dependent on its funding uh, from the U.S. and Israel in many respects. Israel could increase its assaults against the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank if it felt like they weren't sufficiently towing the line or if, if they were becoming too critical of Israel. And I don't know about other countries as well. I mean, again, I don't know what's going on inside of people's heads. And certainly a country like, um, you know, Cuba or Iran are tremendously polarized with the United States. But the U.S. certainly has more draconian measures it could deploy against those countries and even against more powerful countries like South Africa or Brazil. Brazil also said this is genocide. Indonesia, Malaysia, Colombia, uh, Chile, all of these countries have been extremely critical of Israel. But none have done it. I'm not sure to what proportion it is ignorance and to what uh, that they don't know and to what extent it is that they you know, are, are concerned that the U.S. and or Israel could take measures against them. I know that the, you know, the South African, the, South Africa is the country that I know the most about in terms of internal deliberations. 
their parliament voted overwhelmingly to not just simply recall the South African ambassador, which was done, uh, I guess, about a month ago, uh, but that they should totally break off diplomatic relations uh, with Israel. And just uh, about a week ago, maybe less, the South African cabinet met, and I have it on good authority that they actually considered the Genocide Convention, and they also considered completely cutting off diplomatic relations as the parliament had voted for overwhelmingly. And the cabinet decided not to do that. And I was in touch with some activists in South Africa, Patrick Bond, who um, in particular, who's a long time, you know, who goes way back to, you know, fighting against apartheid and so on. He wrote a piece saying, we think of the Israel lobby as just being a U.S. thing, but it's not. There are well-funded institutions in South Africa that are pressuring cabinet, the, the, the government in South Africa, even though it's been critical of Israel to not go too far and, and so on. So a lot of countries that you'd think would be more impervious to various kinds of pressure might not be. Wow. So just two more questions. So are Israel and the United States signatories to the Genocide Convention? They, they are both signatories, um, but Israel is uniquely vulnerable. The particular uh, part of the convention that is relevant here is Article 9, which gives the International Court of Justice jurisdiction over things. When mm. countries enter into a treaty, they can put a reservation on a given article. And when the U.S. signed the Genocide Convention, they put in the reservation that they would not necessarily abide by Article 9. So if, the, if any country accused the U.S. of genocide, they can do that, but they couldn't necessarily. It would become a matter of legal dispute as to whether or not they could take the U.S. to the International Court of Justice because the U.S. has a hold on that paragraph, a reservation on that paragraph. And that paragraph says that I will I will submit to being prosecuted or yeah okay. I, will, I will submit to the International Court of Justice as uh, to adjudicate any matters in this treaty. Mm. Very few countries have a hold. Uh, Israel does not have reservation on that paragraph, so any okay. country which is a signer can invoke it against Israel. They themselves can't have a whole uh, a reservation on that paragraph. So for example, most, almost all the countries that I've said that I've mentioned in the, in the course of this don't have a reservation. One country that does have a reservation is Venezuela. So if Venezuela wanted to do this against Israel, they would first have to remove their reservation on that paragraph before they could invoke that paragraph against Israel, but they could still do it. I see. And, okay. and, and Israel can't add a hold. You, you know, you can only put the reservation when you first sign the treaty. You can't do so later on. Retroactively. Correct. Okay. And then finally, you know, one of the things that you say, you talk about how, because, you know, I've been mainly covering the actions in the street here in D.C., the Palestine Youth Movement, Answer Coalition, and you talk about how people who are demonstrating and rallying uh, in support of the Palestinian people rallying against genocide can actually go to some of the embassies of these countries and say, you know, invoke this, you know, and maybe that will be an education mm -hmm. if they don't know, because they say, why are these people rallying against us? We're not, you know, committing genocide, but no, we can say invoke the genocide convention. And maybe if they don't know, then they'll know. And I guess finally, I wanted to get your just reaction to 
the worldwide outpouring of support for Palestine, for Palestinian people. I know you're part Palestinian. Your dad was Palestinian born, I think you said in Galilee, and one of the people forced out during the Nakba in 1948. Mm -hmm. uh, your mom is Jordanian. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just as a Palestinian, just give me your you know, to sum up on a more positive <laughs> note, you know, your reaction to the outpouring in the streets for Palestine, as opposed to, I guess, you know, this moribund corporate media coverage that we are all, in, you know, avoiding yeah. oh, and not, I mean, I, not I, watching. <laughs> I mean, I try to minimize my you know, consumption of uh, completely deranged and <laughs> detached from reality media coverage quite often. Right. It's been very gratifying to see a lot of these movements, a lot of these protests around the world, very vibrant, very outspoken, very brave from a, such a wide diversity of, uh, of people. And but my, my only thing, as you indicate, is that they can, you know, I think be more strategic. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm certainly not saying that they should go to the, you know, South African or Colombian embassy and, you know, protest against them in the same way that they would against, you know, the White House or the Israeli embassy. But, you know, certainly saying, you know, thank you for what you've done, but you can do this, which might actually impact the situation, which might so raise the costs for the U.S. and Israel. That it right. could because it only takes one country, right? One takes, country. It only takes one country, and you know, you, and you can have one country, and then other countries can add to it. So, you know, I mean, ideally, it would be several countries, but that shouldn't delay matters. One country can do it right now, and then other countries can jump in and, and add their voices to this uh, invocation. That was recently done in the case of Myanmar. You had some country I can't even remember which invoke the genocide convention against uh, the minority. Uh, in Myanmar, and then about two months, a month or two ago, you had the um, several European countries in Canada add themselves to that. So you can, and that case showed that it doesn't have to come from the people there. It can come from a third party. So the legal basis is completely sound. It just requires one country to have the courage to initiate this process. All right. One country. There are a lot of people listening. We only need one country to invoke the Genocide Convention and go to the International Court of Justice to do that. And those of us who are in the streets, who are rallying, we can add that to our, our to-do list, you know, to talk to embassies, to petition embassies and urge them to, to make that move. Or consulates even. I, you know, I, I don't know if you're broadcast in other cities besides D.C., uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your informative writing, your article. And I think that is posted, it's posted on Roots Action. And I think also David Swanson's uh, website. Yeah, Roots our, Action, yeah. Roots Action put out an action alert on, on this, which is great. My, my writing people can get to at husseini.substack.com. That's H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I. Dot substack com. It's an independent journalist platform. Right, exactly. And they have a whole list of the links mm -hmm. to these various embassies that called out Israel's mm -hmm. genocide against the Palestinian people and urging them to, to take this step. Well, anyway, thank you so much. I've been speaking with independent journalist Sam Husseini. Thank you for joining me today, Sam. Thank you, Esther. Okay.
Can we get some music? Let's go. Turn that up. Turn that up. Turn it up. I want everybody to put a fist in the air for all those that we've lost. We got to come together. We got to tell the world like this. Don't let them get away with murder. 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 Look, we gon' tribe and these trees no longer living on our knees. We better dying on our feet, ready to fight for our Cops shooting killer innocent black town. 15, 16, empty the clip, reload and pull the trigger back down. 17, 18, 19, frightening when you hit it by the test sound. 26, 27, every twin, I was put another body under that ground. Where the governor, he absent. Put the prosecutor and the captain. They say the process democratic, but we getting bullets even now we got the ballot. Where's Malcolm, where's Huey? Where's Park, where's Big, where's Tukey? Where's Jay, where's Nas, where's Snoopy? Y'all are the police like Boosie, blame Nixon. He's guilty with the whole damn system. Please don't be cops or his henchmen. Left Mike in the street for I was definition of a lynchpin. Cause I ain't fun down here. They gonna tell me I need to mind my business. I'm going dead with a bullet in his head. You go to the fans, I'm a goddamn witness. It's war on us, 44's on us, and he's still telling us be peaceful. Every week another black youth murder, and he's still got a nerve tell us we equal. When we stand up and put our hands up with the Santa protest, we equal. It's blood in the streets and blood in your hands. This time you answer the people. Don't let them get away with murder. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of African-American Studies and History at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And I know we want to talk about things happening here in the U.S., in Africa, and in Central and South America. So let's start on Capitol Hill this week. There was very interesting testimony from university presidents, as well as the passage of this resolution equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. I think we've talked about it before. Very dangerous. And that's according to progressive Jews, anti-Zionist Jews here and around the world who are now officially, according to this referendum, anti-Semitic. Well, let's start with the hearing involving these presidents of universities. It allowed for demagogic posturing by certain members of the Republican Party conference, particularly Congresswoman Stefanik of upstate New York. It played into their wheelhouse, which is fundamentally a kind of right-wing populism where they posture against being hostile to elites. You saw that at the Republican Party debate where Governor DeSantis was chiding former Governor Nikki Haley because she was receiving money from Wall Street, and supposedly Governor DeSantis is hostile to that, which we know is fraudulent. But in any case, what I was struck by was this attempt once again to equate being critical of Israel or even anti-Zionist with being anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic 
and in fact harboring genocidal notions towards Jewish people generally. In some ways, these university presidents were set up. They were snookered because, first of all, there was questioning with regard to whether or not the slogan from the river to the sea, which we've discussed on this program, is in fact genocidal, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And then the next question, presuming, according to the interrogators, that that is an anti-Jewish genocidal slogan, was whether or not chanting for genocide on your campus would subject a student to any kind of discipline. And of course, since the university presidents were presuming they were still in the discourse about the slogan from the river to the sea, they talked about context, they were hedging, they were hemming and hawing. But the clip that's gone viral in right-wing networks, and in fact, in some sectors of the mainstream press, is that the university presidents were hemming and hawing as to whether or not chanting genocide with regard to Jewish students on campus would be subjecting those chanters to discipline. And so they were trapped. They were snookered. But what's even more dangerous, I'm afraid to say, is that at the same time, we're having this faux debate about so-called anti-Semitism and Ivy League universities like University of Pennsylvania and Harvard, and of course, its cousin, its sibling, MIT in Cambridge. Here in Texas, the Republican Party has rejected the idea that they should steer clear of neo-Nazis and they should steer clear of Holocaust deniers. At the same time, on Capitol Hill, you have a member of Congresswoman Stefanik's own Republican Party conference, speaking of Congressman Massey of Kentucky, who has raised the age-old canard that Jewish Americans are subject to dual loyalties. That is to say, they are not just pl pledging allegiance to the U.S. flag. They have a loyalty to Israel, which, in his estimation, compromises their ability to remain true to the United States of America. Now, this is nothing new. Recall that before John Fitzgerald Kennedy was elected president in 1960, there was a debate as to whether or not his being Catholic meant that he was subject to dual loyalties. That is to say, he would have to bend the knee to the Pope and the Vatican. There was a widespread debate about this. And now it's coming back with a vengeance, I'm afraid to say. And so this is also compromising the ability, I'm afraid to say, of certain blinkered elements in the United States to recognize that this U.S. backing for war crimes in Israel is compromising the global position of U.S. imperialism. You might have noted the visit to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia by President Putin of Russia. It was more than the red carpet that was rolled out for him. And another factoid that I could not help but notice was that when he flew in to West Asia, that he was accompanied by Russian fighter jets, because apparently there is a fear in Russia that if President Putin is flying abroad, that just as the former Bolivian president 
uh, during the Edward Snowden controversy a few years ago, speaking of Evo Morales, his plane was forced down because they thought that he had Edward Snowden on the plane. So there's a fear that Mr. Putin's plane will be forced down and that he will be detained. This is the kind of bizarro world which we're now forced to engage. And this is the kind of danger and peril that our small planet is now forced to engage. It is amazing to be caught up in this kind of funhouse, this netherworld, where not only can people not have a conversation, but they can't even acknowledge history. That their their history starts on October 7th. It doesn't start in 1948 in the Nakba and hundreds of thousands of people killed and displaced, or not even in the 75 years after that. Not even, it doesn't even start on, start on October 6th. Or just this year, when you've had hundreds of Palestinians killed on the West Bank and thousands detained without charge or trial, where you've had, you know, children tortured, children still being killed in the street. So it's not even a conversation to have because these Zionists are living in a world that doesn't even recognize reality or history. And they will argue you down about the fact that facts aren't facts. But we we don't really have that much time. And I want to make sure that we get to Africa and Venezuela uh, and Guyana. So where do you want to go next? Well, first of all, with regard to Africa, an important development is that Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger have banded together in a confederation, the Alliance of Sahel States. This is very important. It will allow them to pool resources It's a step towards weaker and poorer state regimes uniting so that they can more forcefully confront the North Atlantic powers. It's intriguing and profound. You know, before we leave Africa, I just noticed before I got on with you that in in reference to Darfur, that this was a statement by from the U.S. Department of State on Thursday by Administrator Samantha Power saying that the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces are committing crimes against humanity and uh, persecution and ethnic cleansing in Darfur, just like Colin Powell uh, declared 20 years ago. And while we haven't explored in depth what's happening in the Sudan, just the fact that this statement is being made by the U.S. State Department at the same time it is facilitating a genocide in Gaza is amazing to me. I didn't know if you had a chance to look at this piece. No, I didn't see that particular story, but I think only the naive will be shocked by the hypocrisy of the U.S. State Department facilitating genocide in Gaza at the same time in a mealy-mouthed fashion calling on the Israeli authorities to show restraint, while in a full-throated manner denouncing crimes against humanity that they see in Darfur and Western Sudan. Uh, This is what is helping to destabilize the image internationally of U.S. imperialism, which I can't say that I'm unhappy about. Before we uh, wrap up, I want to definitely mention the fact that uh, on December 3rd, there was a referendum in Venezuela where the people uh, voted that they are going to make this region, the Guyana Essequiba region, the 54th state of Venezuela. We've talked about this uh, controversy for seems like years now that there there's been a dispute 
over this territory that uh, they say was stolen from them uh, by the British Empire and given to Guyana. And Guyana, uh, in league with U.S. imperialism and Exxon and these oil corporations have tried to seize this territory. And um, even, I think they're even beginning drilling there. So anyway, this referendum followed by a motion um, passed by the the legislature there and adopted by the president Maduro uh, seems to be set up for some type of confrontation, but I'm not really sure. But they are, are laying claim to their territory and uh, setting up uh, security for that region. Well, it's very unfortunate. And certainly Caracas uh, has a point when it suggests that at the end of the 19th century, uh, their regime was disadvantaged in confronting the mighty British Empire. And therefore, this region, in a certain way, uh, went to London uh, illicitly and improperly. And then Guyana, today's Guyana, is the successor regime. Uh, Guyana becoming independent in the middle of the 20th century. At the same time, uh, Venezuela has a population about 20 times the size of Guyana. And as you suggested, Guyana, in response, has collaborated or reached out to its partner in exploiting its own oil resources. Speaking of Exxon, apparently uh, U.S. Pentagon officials have been in and out of Georgetown, the capital of Guyana, in recent days. The good news is that President Lula of Brazil is pledging and vowing to mediate between the two states. I would hope and imagine that Cuba would offer its good offices since it has good relations with both Georgetown and Caracas, because otherwise, it seems to me, Venezuela might be headed to some sort of trap. That is to say, uh, opening itself up to some sort of more organized, more potent intervention by U.S. imperialism along the line that Donald J. Trump floated a few years ago when he talked about uh, intervening in, in Venezuela and seizing their oil resources. Mm. Okay, well, that's another story we'll have to keep watch on uh, as this uh, the empire is really spread out from the Caribbean to I wanted to say Middle East, but West Asia to Ukraine, to the South China Sea. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And Gerald Horn will have the last word on this episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. I also link to all of my shows on my Instagram page, which is Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Everum, I, V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. You can also write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam on all your podcast platforms. DC radio listeners, don't forget On the Ground will be preempted on December 15th. But you can catch our December 15th show on our website, onthegroundshow.org, and on the podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included Third Generation by Damar, Murder by Jaziri X, 
And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>